Welcome to the Librarian Influencers Podcast. Each week, our host, Dr. Laura Shinneman, dives deep into school library topics to help you build your skills and take charge of your own professional development. Her mission is to create an environment where librarians flourish and become lifelong learners. Now, on to today's podcast. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Librarian Influencers Podcast, and today I'm very excited to have Lisa Von Drasic. So Lisa, can you give us a little background on your library experience? I would love to. I have a very unusual library experience. I came to librarianship from being working in bookstores, managing an independent bookstore, working in a children's museum, and you know in what color is your parachute? You're supposed to make a list of all the things you love about a job. And what do I love? I love working with kids and I love working with books. And so I did what color is your parachute? And somewhere around there while I was still working in publishing, uh, in one week, three different people told me I should quit my job <laughs> and become a children's librarian. Oh, one person actually said to me, you are wasting your life in an office with a computer and a telephone. You wow. should be with children and books. You should be a children's librarian. <laughs> and in my head, I thought I should be a rock star too, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> and she said, well, here's my card. We can talk about it. And so... I had been tangentially, I understood libraries in the sense from marketing and sales and editorial from publishing. But what librarians did were all the things I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be with kids. I wanted to be with books and literacy and things like that. I wanted to be of service. I did in my background have nonprofit experience so I knew I liked being in a nonprofit environment and I loved working with women huh. and I had that on my list and I went you know this this kind of this and the Brooklyn Public Library at that time had a great program that you could be a librarian trainee too for a year before deciding to get your degree huh very and interesting and so that's what I ended up doing. That was in 1992. I worked at the Brooklyn Public Library for five years as a public librarian, as a children's specialist. And I ended up in the central children's room, which is a zoo. That's the only way I will put it. There's not a dull moment. Every day is different. And it was a great opportunity to, to be in the trenches. Um, in Brooklyn. It was fabulous. Wow. It was a great job. At then a position opened at a lab school. Okay. And the lab school was attached to the Bank Street College of Education. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, <laughs> the thing about you got to know about Bank Street is I had spent five years in a children's museum and everyone got their master's degree at Bank Street. Everyone in, in museum education and early childhood education, it was the number one, if you were gonna get this education, if you were gonna do this, you went to Bank Street. So this position was open for as a, a sabbatical replacement. Okay. I needed to deal with the administration at at, in, in Brooklyn to take a leave of absence for a year and spend a year at Bank Street. Oh, okay. What a wonderful experience. Taking classes, being in, it was amazing. And at the end of the year, the person who went on sabbatical didn't come back. <laughs> okay. Or as we call that terminal leave. Uh -huh. That's awful. So she did not come back and I interviewed for the position and I got it and I stayed the children's librarian. Um, I, we use the phrase teacher librarian. I like that phrase because that's what I was. Mm -hmm. um, at Bank Street, pre-K through eighth grade for 15 years. Uh, 
And at the same time, I was the director for the Center for Children's Literature, which dealt with every other facet of literacy that wasn't hands-on with the kids. So I taught children's literature in our graduate school to teachers. Okay. I was a thesis advisor. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's how I... And then the position opened at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> and you have to say to yourself, besides the fact that Minnesota was the home of my husband's family and we were living in New York City for 25 years. Uh -huh. um, can I be, when do I stop being a classroom teacher? Mm -hmm. Do I want to be that teacher that they say, you know, she should have retired five years ago. And I have to say, you know, I was always challenged in that position and leaving that position was breaking my heart. But it was an this position wasn't going to open again, who knows when. Mm -hmm. The person who had the job before me had it for 42 years. Oh <laughs> so to be uh, the curator for the children's literature research collections and be able to create exhibits to create objects to be in relationships with authors and illustrators and to preserve their work for teaching wow. that was a great opportunity so that was my windy road to this job i often have graduate students shadowing me and they want to know how to get a job like mine and i have to say a lot of it has to do with luck and a lot of it has to do with if there was any advice I would give someone, it's say yes. You don't know if you can write reviews until you write reviews. You don't know you can do professional development until you go speak in front of 250 people. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my circuitous route. Okay. And, but what an interesting story, how that's all weaved together, you know, to create this perfect spot where you are right now. Very interesting. All right, so you mentioned Minnesota. What, what are the requirements in your state if somebody wanted to be a librarian there? Well, if you want to be a public school librarian, um, you need your MLIS. Okay. And there's only one school in Minnesota that actually grants that. That is St. Kate's, St. Catherine University in St. Paul. Um, and then there's uh, another way, if you're a certified teacher, then you can go to St. Cloud or Mankato State and they have school librarian certification. Little known fact, I married a certified school librarian from Mankato State. All right, very good. Student teaching and then never did it again. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. So it was very interesting. I didn't know this until we were married six years. Okay, that's very, that is a good story. Okay, so um, you, you've told us a little bit about your background, and, and I know that when, when you had reached out to me, you talked about something called writing boxes. So could you go ahead and, and just tell us a little bit about this and, and what, what this is with, with libraries? Well, uh, the number one thing it has to do with libraries is something that I thought was pretty self-evident was that we consider literature and literacy part of our job. Mm -hmm. And since I was a public librarian and then as a school librarian, I've always had something called writing boxes as part of my program and selected books as mentor texts to, to spark writing. And there was always writing in my library program. And it always supported the standards mm -hmm. and the expectations and the goals pre-K through eighth grade. Okay. And as I spoke to people and did trainings and um, people kept saying, where's the book? <laughs> and I kept saying, you don't need a book. It's all free online. I put all the handouts and all the things. You can do cartoony, you can do recipes, you can do memoir writing, you can make comics, you can make zines. It's all on, it's free, just download. And where's the book? So the University of Minnesota has a wonderful program, which is a free publishing program. Your manuscript is peer reviewed. Okay. And then if it passes all the, all the channels, they'll publish it for you. And we make it open access so that anyone can 
access these materials. So again, it's a free download. People can actually buy a book if they want to, but I, I left the link up for you and I guess you can put it on your blog and say, you can do this. And it really is step-by-step -step instructions on how to incorporate writing in everything that you do. And the best part of that, it's an easy buy-in for the administrators because it supports the classroom teacher's goals as well. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at the cover of the book and I can see like a little, I'm gonna say a pencil box, something like that, that's got markers and pencils and scissors and glue and sticky notes, all kinds of materials. So just give a little scenario of like if, if the admin were gonna walk into the library, what would they see happening with these boxes? Well, for example, um, you don't put your books behind a cage. You allow children to browse. You allow students to select what they would like to do. One of the things that I did as part of every library time, I would have my lesson. It could be critical thinking skills. It could be how to find something in the library, depending on the age group. But it also could be fact checking. Mm -hmm. So you'll have students who just love doing that. You find that that just lights their fire. So to always have those fact-checking sheets for reading materials, they can select that. They can choose that as part of their library program. And what I found is that it's an amazing form of discipline. Not in I am disciplined, therefore I write, but in discipline in if you've got kids throwing things or talking out of turn or doing that, they have an opportunity to self-select an activity that speaks to them. Okay. So you have those kids who want to do cartooning and you can align with the classroom teacher and the report on photosynthesis is actually in cartoon format and it's a zine. Mm -hmm. So these build on each other. So kids who have this when they're in third grade come to expect it in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And it's just part of the program. Wow. So is it something that you just had out all the time, you know, on the tables or? Um, we, had, we had cubbies and then we would put um, uh, a box, a couple boxes for younger students and a couple boxes for older students. In the public library, they just, checked it out like reference material. Mm -hmm. But in the school library, you know your students, you know who's there. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So where did this idea come from when you started doing this? So I was at the Brooklyn Public Library and there was a very similar time as now, there was an emergency in New York City. It was the asbestos crisis. Okay. And the mayor closed all the schools. Huh. Yes, they said, but where will the children go? Oh, the no. children came to the public library. Okay. And I had had read a book called Kids of All the Right Stuff, which was about writing boxes in schools. Okay. And so I adapted it to the public library, and then it became part of our summer reading program, then it became part of our state program, and then I spoke at ALA. And in fact, at this last ALA last summer, it was me, Dave Eggers, John Cheska, and Nikki Grimes. Oh. Talking about writing, talking about writing in your library and why, just as we have the expectation that literacy is reading, mm -hmm. literacy is writing too. It really, and I see on the, the cover of your book, it is the reading writing connection. And, that, and that's so true. I taught the little ones for a very long time. And, and that was really something you know, that we would talk about, like the writing road to reading. You know, because as you're writing, it's, you know, it's, it's the transition. It's what leads you in and, and really builds that connection. And I didn't invent that. I just, it just felt like a way to put it all in one place to make it easy for school librarians to access the information and have ready-made curriculum. Because as we know, that's the, you know, the, the lie of the summer off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, well, uh, go ahead and tell us uh, next, let's talk about the Operation Read Aloud that's going on in Minnesota. Yeah. Hashtag Operation Read Aloud is actually not just in Minnesota, it's um, international right now. Okay. It's, it started, it's a Facebook page, it's a group anyone can join, but it started because I was in Northern Italy 
in February. And when I came home, people were saying, how are you feeling? What's going on? Are you okay? So they had started to lock down the the towns in Northern Italy, including Bologna, where I was. And I had made some very good friends when I was in Italy. And one of them was a preschool teacher. Mm -hmm. And she was on week three of her lockdown. And she is out of books. She's out of books in her house to read aloud on Zoom. She's at the people at home. The parents are going nuts. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'll ask a few of our donors, the people who donate materials to our collection, to read one of their books aloud on a video and speak very slowly. And you can translate into Italian. In fact, they can translate it into Chinese. It'll be great. And as I was putting this together, I got, a, I got a, uh, an email from a marketing director from a publishing house who explained to me she wasn't really excited about this. Oh. There were copyright issues. Yes, yes. But meanwhile, as we were having these discussions and I was talking to publishers about having an emergency statement allowing this kind of activity, New York City was being locked down, San Francisco, Portland, after the weekend, we had the uh, Zoom meeting with uh, more than a dozen publishers and editors and people who said, okay, here, we have policies. Can we start a, a website or a Facebook page that explains the policies, who can do what, and invite people to do this? And it exploded. There's more than a thousand members of the Facebook group. And we are aggregating YouTube videos and Instagram videos and Twitter videos in one place with some tags that says, if you want, if you want to have lunch with Mo Willems and do a doodle, he's doing a doodle every day at lunchtime. If you want to um, hear some, uh, a chapter a day from Nikki Grimes, you can. Katie Camillo has started a writing workshop. Every week she tells you, you know, so the first week, write two pages a day. That's it. The second week, find a buddy. The third week, do you you have a a notebook that you can start keeping? And write, yes, I do, Kate. Yes, I do. (gasps) Um, So we we are bringing literacy into homes and soon when I calm down a bit, um, I'll start taking stuff from the writing box book and linking to those videos. So if you have Dan Yaccarino reading aloud A Long Way to America, I don't know if you know that book, but it's about his immigrant ancestors coming to America from Italy. Okay. And it is also about what we pass down. And the ideas we pass down from generation to generation and the objects we pass down. And is this not the perfect mentor text and prompt to writing our own memoirs and asking our family for their stories? Oh, definitely. In perfect time since we're all together right now. <laughs> so that's what we'll be putting. So I put up the Blue Ox Review because that's where I'm going to be placing those materials because not every school actually has access to Facebook. Not every person has. So I will take the things that are accessible, surround it with some support curriculum that will take an hour. Okay. Because that's the time period people are, you know, zooming and doing curriculum. It'll be like 45 minutes and then some reflection. Okay. Very good. We'll be sure to make links for that. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. Very good. I don't know who doesn't have enough work to do right now. (laughs) I, I find for myself right now that I'm working way more than I did, you know, when I was just going into work every day. It's like, oh, my yeah. God. you know, up way earlier, uh, staying up later and just a lot more work going on. But, you know, that's a good thing. That's, it's good yeah, to be. No, I'm not against it. I'm, um, I know how privileged we are to keep in contact with our kids. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm doing with a fifth grade classroom right now is you know how exhausted you are on these Zoom meetings and, and present, you have to be present. And you know, if you were sitting at a desk, you'd be doodling or you'd be writing notes like, oh yeah, don't forget to do this. Yeah. So we're providing each child in this classroom as an experiment, um, a copy of a book called Comics is Easy BC by Ivan Brunetti. It's not expensive, it's a paperback a composition notebook, 
blank mm -hmm. and a flare pen of their very own. Because just think how hard it is to put your hands on a pen in your house and who walked away with it. At least you know that that is your writing instrument and this is your notebook and it's yours to do whatever you want with it. And then we have a mentor text. Mm -hmm. And then you have time that is sanctioned by your teacher to walk away from a computer and it's not something you're going to be graded on. It's a process. Wow, beautiful. That is beautiful. That's, that's the big project I'm working on now. Very fun. All right. Okay, well, let's go back to um, your time when you were in the library and you talked about your um, circuitous route, you know, getting there. Uh, but what do you remember about those earliest years? Because a lot of our listeners are the early year, early career librarians. And I'm going to talk about my early years as a school librarian. Okay. Because as a public librarian, that was pretty much aligned with my experiences in a children's museum and education and things like that. Mm -hmm. And programming. I Pretty much everything a public librarian does, I, I was already there. Going to from that and, and changing hats to a school librarian, um, one, your day is regimented. I did not have a flexible schedule. I wasn't in charge of my schedule. I didn't get to say, yes, your, your class can come visit on this time and this date. It was a uh, fixed schedule and it was during the time people were screaming about fixed schedules but I have to say I was grateful for the fixed schedule because I needed to see every kid in the school right. was it elementary it was elementary right K through eighth grade okay so I had 20 classes a week plus four research blocks mm -hmm. very exciting mm -hmm. and then um, so having that, like you have to be every day, you're at school at X time. You don't go out on a, on a school night. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is your schedule. Um, so getting used to that very regimented schedule was, it wasn't difficult, it just was different. Um, the other part of that is that, um, understanding immediately. I, I, I was lucky enough that um, I was part of a mentorship online group called LMNet. And I would advise anybody, especially if you're new, get right on there. Mm -hmm. That's very listserv. So, so being on that listserv and hearing the questions people and being able to search it for questions that I had, um, I knew theoretically what curriculum was, but I didn't know how to create it myself. Mm -hmm. um, I inherited some curriculum from the previous librarian, but she wasn't there to access for, for, for most of the work that I was doing. And so reading, I read a lot of um, ASL materials. Mm -hmm. What are the standards? I was extremely lucky to be in New York City because even though I was in independent school, we had access to all the materials from the Department of Education. Barbara Stripling was the head of school libraries. Oh, wow, what a wonderful but person to be in. Yeah, to go to all their professional development stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, making the time to access professional development mm -hmm. was one of the best things I ever did for myself. The, I, I wrote on your notes, I said fear. Mm -hmm. um, my fear was that I wasn't good enough for this job because I, I didn't come through a teaching background, but I realized very quickly that the work I was doing was teaching, I just didn't call it that. Classroom management issues. I did a lot of reading on that. That the first thing I did for getting into my curriculum and teaching information literacy, why don't you just find out everyone's name? Why don't you memorize everyone's name and have some understanding of where they are in their reading where they are in their interests, 
and what their classroom is doing right now. Mm -hmm. I needed to gather information. I was like the CIA. <laughs> I, I was, once I figured out that the most important thing was to gather information, not tell anybody else what to do, to gather information. What are the deficits of the program right now? What are the teachers' expectations of me? I found out that the lower school teachers, you know, the kindergarten teachers, they didn't really love funny stories. They wanted very concrete informational books and sharing. Good to know. Yeah. Um, what is the culture of the school? I read aloud being Mr. Jones and got in an enormous amount of trouble. Uh-oh. You recall being Mr. Jones? No, I don't, I don't remember that one. He is the kindergartner, and she doesn't want to go to kindergarten anymore. Amy Schwartz. Um, she doesn't want to go to kindergarten anymore because it's boring and she already knows the alphabet and she already knows her colors and she already knows her numbers. And Mr. Jones, her dad says, oh, you think that's bad. Advertising is terrible. You have to laugh at the boss's jokes and you have to do this, that and the other. And then the next day, B and Mr. Jones switch places and B goes to advertising and wears a suit and she laughs. She loves the boss's jokes. It's great. And Mr. Jones is the second smartest kid in the reading circle. Second smartest. <laughs> and I got in trouble for reading that. The, the coordinator of the, the class levels came to my boss, who then had a meeting with me. <laughs> Because the children, there's no child in our school who doesn't want to come to school. Oh, no. Okay. Now, and the right answer, if you're trying to get along and gather information and you're new, is not to say that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's to say, huh, thank you. What do they think I should be reading? Mm -hmm. Because there's so many books. This is not the hill I want to die on. Right. And I was there, I thought I was there only for a year to learn. And what I learned in that year is that I love seeing the kids grow through the year. I love working with parents and children. I adore working with teachers. And the more open I was to what they were interested in, the more they were open to collaborating with me. Mm -hmm. And that collaboration isn't a thing where I go, I got a great idea. Here's what you should do in your classroom and I'll align my curriculum with that. It's, hey, you're building a 3D model of the Hudson River. Let me make sure you have all the materials you need mm -hmm. to support that. And what can I do in the library? Oh, we can make maps in the library. We could do North South. I could read a story. Mm -hmm. mapping Sam and therefore I'm aligning what I'm doing through literacy and writing and reading and it's seamless going from the classroom the other thing is make friends with the gym teacher and I will tell you why I don't know about your school but in my school Ricky was the hero he walked through the cafeteria children screamed Ricky Ricky he was the most beloved human being in our entire school. Well, for classroom discipline's sake, if you are having a troublesome classroom that just can't settle those first 10 minutes, you're losing time. You're worried they're never, ever going to learn how to do X, Y, and Z because you spend more time writing notes to their classroom teacher or having things signed by their parents or pulling people. Oh, no, 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 no. Have a little chat with Ricky. Ricky will walk the kids from their classroom to your classroom. Ricky will sit and read aloud a book. Ricky will show respect for the librarian's time. Beautiful. And you never have to discuss it again. Very, very strategic. That's a, that's a smart move. Thank you. All right. So you have, you've just given a ton of advice for people who are... <laughs> 
we're just starting out, but are there any other just little tidbits of things you wanted to share, like things you might have said to your younger self when you were starting out? You're not wasting time reading aloud. Just keep repeating that to yourself. You're not wasting time. You're not wasting time. Have the support so that if somebody walks in, now remember, I was observed constantly because Bank Street College of Education was a graduate school of education. It was a laboratory for educational theory and a lab school. So we always had people observing us. Right. And so we don't want people observing your teaching practice. You know, we, you, you would never get nervous that your principal is going to watch you because people are watching you from all around the world all the time. That the, the, the underpinnings of literacy come from hearing, come from story, come from these things. That picture books are for fifth graders. Mm -hmm. And that eventually we can align that with the curriculum so they're creating their own. And they're using them as responses to STEM topics. Mm -hmm. So remember that library isn't a segment over here. Library is like a, with their tentacles in everything everyone is doing. Mm -hmm. And that my job is to be that facilitator for that. And it is exhausting, but it is also exciting and invigorating so by year three you know I have high self-esteem about my ability to do this job to do it well I have I have relationships with every teacher in my school except for one an eighth grade teacher who just felt like there wasn't a reason that he needed to be bothered with library okay you know it, it was a place to send his kids when he wanted them out of the classroom and i would you know i would stop by his classroom i would send him email it's zero 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 and then it hit the fan when he actually like on curriculum night told the parents there was nothing in the library for his students oh wow oh that hurt and the emails started coming. Why are they sending their kid to a school that doesn't care about? Meanwhile, you know, the other eighth grade teacher, I'm embedded in her classroom. Wow. And you know what the great advice was? Give up, let it go. Hmm. You can't, you can't, it's, it's a thing. You can't force feed someone. If you're worried about the students in his class not getting what they need, how can you do that? Well, the actual truth is by the time they hit eighth grade, they knew what plagiarism was. They knew critical thinking skills. They still had to do their independent projects. And there was another teacher in that classroom who you were working with. Mm -hmm. So you have a way. You, you don't have to you're not going to be beloved by everyone. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're knocking your head against the wall. You know, there's a, it's a finite amount of time you have. Yeah. And also align yourself with the administrators. Mm -hmm. The administrator calls me in and says, parents say from this guy's class that you're not, and I, and they go, oh, okay. And the next year, when I had an, a, a relevant author coming for a visit, I tried to have an author in every grade level, that administrator told that eighth grade teacher that just like there's an art curriculum that he has no say over, there's a library curriculum and his students would be there and they will have read the book okay. and they would be part of the discussions. Okay. So it, nothing happens overnight. I think that's the key too, is it's not gonna happen overnight. And you didn't just mention that it was really kind of like by year three, you know, when you really kind of felt settled and more confident and things were were moving along. And, and that's true. I think even as you move maybe from one school, you know, to another school, you kind of start all over again. You know, you got to build that confidence back up and and don't give up before the miracle happens. Mm -hmm. You, you don't know when that or, or, you know, every Wednesday, Shauna's class, they're evil. 
talk to the other specialists. You'll find out they're not just evil in your class. They've been working their way through the grade levels that way. Mm-hmm. That's true. And you don't treat every class exactly the same. Yeah. Or every child. That's for sure. All right. So I, you know, I titled this podcast, The Librarian Influencers, because I really see the librarians as having huge impact, huge influence on their campuses. So what would you say, how would you describe the influence where you currently are? Oh, where I'm currently am. Well, or we can talk in the past if you want to talk in the past. Well, no, no, I, I, I feel like I left a very strong legacy. So if I was going to pick three things, one is the expectation that there is a library, there is a professional librarian, and that the work of the library is equal to the work of every other teacher in the school. Amen. That are not prep. Yeah. If, if you choose to use the time that you are not with your kids prep, great. But it's not, that's not what library is uh, a clear understanding what information literacy is and what i did so i felt i left that great legacy for the next librarian and the next librarian um integrated library programs in every grade level so having that collaboration that they always knew that they could turn to me mm-hmm. um and because i taught teachers what their expectations when they go into a school and if they don't have a library and they don't have a library in a school, that it is their job to advocate for this essential worker within their community, a certified librarian who understands teaching curriculum, child development, literacy, and literature. They should have that expectation. And I would say that was the other thing is that there is no school librarian who doesn't have the job of advocacy. Uh Because it is so easy to be dismissed that people do not know. So you need your constituencies. You need the parents. You need the teachers. You need the administrators. And you need the children. Nothing gave me more joy than a child giving a tour of our school and walking through the library to explain what we do in library. Mm -hmm. So, so that what, that's what I left behind and I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. And my influence on the campus of the university of Minnesota, um, I can say I do have influence. (laughs) I embed in almost every subject area. I in biology classes. How do, we, how do we communicate scientific concepts through literature, literacy, and writing? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, if you're studying photosynthesis at an undergraduate level and your professor wants to know that you comprehend this material, what better way than creating a zine about it? So that same work that I was doing for younger children, I do at the university. Also, we are a land-grant college, university. We're a land-grant. And what that means is we serve not only the students that come to us, but our entire community. The University of Minnesota, did you know just today they announced that they've invented a ventilator? No, I didn't have to. A cheap reproducible ventilator at the University of Minnesota. It's incredible. And so we have this need, we find a need, we fill it. So what I do, I have amazing archive of original art and manuscripts. Mm -hmm. I can continue to ask people for their stuff because most of the materials are donated to us. So if you're looking at the, the, the art journals of James Marshall that was donated to us. The entire artwork of Balloons Over Broadway by Melissa Sweet donated to us. Her research notes, her 10 dummies, the way she changed. And so think about that. If you're a classroom teacher, what a gift it is to see 
the creative process, mm -hmm. the actual research, the, oh, wait a minute, that's STEM, that's engineering. So what I do is I take these materials and I make online exhibits for anyone to use. So if you want to see how the balloons were created to float in the Thanksgiving Day Parade, you can also see the same process in Melissa Sweet's work and her research notes. So we put that stuff online in a container that helps any teacher teach this. If someone is teaching art and they want to know about art and media and technique, we have so much original art. Why not see the, the watercolor of Jerry Pinckney as compared to the scratchboard art of his son? Is that open to the public or is that just something? Yeah, I should have put it up. So if you just Google UMN, University of Minnesota, Curlin Collections, or children's literature research collections and look for digital. Okay. We have these. So right now I'm working on a fabulous project for those writers amongst us. The writing process. Wouldn't you like to look at the first page of the first draft of Because of Winn-Dixie? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to look at the fourth draft? Wouldn't you like to look at the last draft and you think that's really fine, but then you look at the finished page and you realize the work that went in. And Kate will tell you that she gives her papers to the University of Minnesota, to the Curling Collection, because she wants kids to see what a mess writing starts out as. Okay. And she wants grown-ups to see the same thing. So I'm here for everybody in that sense. Just today, I got an email from Sharon Creech. We're going to be using Love That Dog in the same way. And these creators have given us permission to create these educational assets to share with anyone. Do you, do you reach out to them or do they reach out to you because they see what you're doing? Or how, what's that? Both ways. I try not to be the person they cross the street from. If I'm walking down the street in New York, oh, there comes Lisa. She's going to ask me for stuff. But I think what I do do is um, most people, what happens is, is that they, they consider what their legacy is going to be. And if the art gets sold at auction, it goes here, it goes there. For instance, Tommy DePaula just died. Mm -hmm. It's just heartbreaking. But we know because we hold complete sets of his art and his sketches in the collection that his books will be continued to be republished because they can re-image the art from our collection. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, some artists are thinking about what their legacy is. Um, some do want people to teach, Tommy wanted people to teach and learn from it. He wanted kids up close to his paintings on paper. So um, if people want to see the kinds of things we have, we have another free download, which is the ABC of it, Why Children's Books Matter. And we took 600 images and we packed them together in a book. You can buy a book or you can freely download it and you can see a Margaret Weiss Brown book, The Little Fur Family, and we hold in the collection the first edition that was bound in rabbit fur. And you can see how big it is and what a delicate object this thing was. And it actually was very rare because they discovered that if you have a warehouse with books bound in rabbit fur, they will be infested. Ooh. So there's a very short run that went out that people have of the book that exists in fur and then the, all the others are fake fur. Okay. So we have these rare objects, but we also have, you know, interesting art and things like that. All right. Well, you, earlier you mentioned, you know, about the, the Minnesota hashtag read out loud. I don't remember if that's the correct hashtag, but that it's program. Hashtag, hashtag operation read aloud. Okay. And you mentioned about 
taking some of those mentor texts and you're going to be assigned working with it, getting some curriculum tie in with the writing responses. So when you think about our, our listeners, um, what kind of advice would you have for them if they're going to start trying out some of these things that you're talking about? Um, because many of our listeners right now, and maybe even in the fall, will be teaching online. I would say start looking at videos of authors that you love who are reading aloud whole books and think to yourself or peruse, you could like glance at and read through um, the writing box book and see how the books that you love, the books that speak to you, the books that speak to your community or give a, a look into another community that maybe you don't know and how would one of these writing responses work with your specific developmental age groups because things that work with seventh graders are not the same things that work with first graders. A great example of that is um, uh, poetry. You could have poetry at a higher level. There's a wonderful poem by George Ella Lyon called Where I'm From. You could read aloud to sixth and seventh graders where I'm from. And she's from Kentucky, I think. And she talks about the tastes and the smells and the sounds of where is she's from, where she's from. Well, we've done that with Somali immigrant kids in downtown Minneapolis in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood. What are the tastes, the smells, the sounds from their families? And you can jump off from that to recipe writing and memoir writing. So I did that as a professional development uh, presentation last fall in New York City. And I got a letter from a teacher that said she did exactly that. She told a story about Honey Cake and her family. And that was a memoir that was just a one page of why Honey Cake is something that brings something to her mind and her memory and her feelings. And then she wrote out the recipe for honey cake. And so she showed that to the kids. And then there was an article in the Washington Post that they interviewed ambassadors in, in DC of what, what foods remind them of home and what restaurants they went to. So they read a little piece. So they had a mentor text, they had an example from the, from the librarian, and then the students wrote a memory that they had about a food or feeling with food. And then the recipe, they had to go find the recipe in a real cookbook. So there's research, oi, oi, oi. And she sent that to me, and it was just in time for when the book was being published that I said, I need, I need two more pages. I got permission to put the students' work in. So if you look under recipes, if you just do Control-F search, find recipes, you'll find the honey cake recipe, but you'll also find the students' recipe. It was something from India. It was lovely. Wow. So I'm just saying, I just... This is, this, this is the joy that comes of this. And don't be afraid of your own fear. Don't be afraid to get in front of a class and think, okay, I've never done this before. They're not going to write. They always write. <laughs> they always write. I always think, oh my God, what was I thinking? They always write. You will, for sure. And what a perfect time this could be right now to take advantage of this time with all their their home time and their connections with stories and even FaceTiming with relatives, you know, whatever. Um, well, Lisa, it, go ahead. I'm just going to, I'm talking about one more mentor text because I just can't stand not to. So John Sheska, you might know him from the true story of three pigs by a wolf. Yes. From the stinky cheese man. So this is younger. Kids are familiar with this work. He has an older book. I would say fourth grade and up, you could read it aloud too called Knuckleheads. Do you know this book? I don't know that one. I know the other. It's Knuckleheads Growing Up Sheska. It's short chapters, uh, four or five pages tops. You can read them aloud to the kids. Um, and then talk about knuckleheaded things that you may have done when you were a kid or that your siblings did 
or that you heard a story from a parent. And I reviewed that book for the New York Times. So what I do is I give them the review that I wrote in the New York Times, in which I describe my father-in-law telling a story when I first met him. Oh, that's the field I lit on fire when I was 10. <laughs> okay. So I was saying, you know, these stories, things you never want to share with anyone because you're embarrassed or, you know, you don't want to think of your parents doing knuckle-headed, short-sighted, silly things. The, the review was published in the New York Times. I get a phone call Sunday morning. I wasn't really thinking that in Mankato, Minnesota, where my father-in-law lived, that his friends and family will perhaps read the Sunday Times. <laughs> section. And how many Lisa Von Dreistics are there running around with a father-in-law? <laughs> oh, Joe, they said. Oh, Joe, you, we never knew who lit that field on fire. You told on him. <laughs> I, I outed my father-in-law. So these are the kinds of stories we want to hear right now. As we're sequestered at home, everything is on the phone or through a computer because we want people to be safe. Right. We want them to stay home and be safe. Well, let's get these stories that, oh, you know, it'd be different if I was sitting in the car next to you, but I'm sequestered. You owe me a story. Very good. Beautiful. All right. Well, Lisa, I know that our audience has had a great time listening to you share today. So if any of them want to connect with you, what's going to be the best way to reach out to you? Probably email. Um, it's an easy email. It's the University of Minnesota ran out of letters. So it's L-V-O-N-D-R-A-S at U-M-N dot E-D-U. Okay. And I do, you know, it, join the Facebook group, hashtag Operation Read Aloud, and I do answer the messages that come on there. Okay. So if you see a video and you think, oh, what can I do with this, and you want to brainstorm, I'm your librarian. Very good. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your stories. And I, and I bet you there are even listeners today that want to know how did you, how can they have your job in the future? So you have so much fun. I'm 60 now, so you can count out the years. All right. You have such a passion and, and that's just really ringing true to that today. So thanks again for sharing all your stories. I just look forward. I'm going to find your, your blog and I'm going to find that Facebook page and I just look forward to following it and learning more from you. So thank um, you. I look forward to listening to this future podcast because I've learned an awful lot. Thank you for asking me. You're very welcome. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Good night.